So we're in Ezekiel chapter 33. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet and warns the people, and if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. We've been through this before. Remember back in, uh, I think it's Ezekiel 3, we did the business with the watchman on the wall. This is a reprise of that. The emphasis before was on individual performance. Now the emphasis is going to shift to Israel. And as I said when we were doing it the first time, that watchmen are appointed. And as you see here, it says, if people of the land take a man from among them and make him a watchman. In other words, they take this guy and they put a star on his chest and say, you're the sheriff, stand up there and watch. This is not talking about the responsibility of individuals who are not in official capacity. And as God is going to go forward and he's going to apply it to Ezekiel, it's again because he has appointed Ezekiel. And what it's talking about is dereliction of duty on the part of someone who has been appointed to the position of watchman. If the watchman does his job and the sword comes and takes someone away, the watchman having done his job, the problem is with the one who was taken away, not with the watchman. If the watchman doesn't do his job, then the problem is still with the guy that gets taken away, but in addition to that, the watchman has a problem. Verse 4, Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes one of them away, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Someone who is taken away has got a problem. If he's taken away because he heard the trumpet and didn't do anything, he's got a problem. If he's taken away because the watchman did not blow the trumpet, this guy still has a problem. His guilt is not assuaged by the fact that he wasn't warned. But if the watchman doesn't do his job, God will require the blood of the one who was taken away at the watchman's hands. He'll hold the watchman guilty. So you have two guilty people in that case the watchman and the one who was taken away. And I guess the point I would make here is it is not an excuse to say you didn't get a warning. So if you've got a nation or a people that is behaving poorly and disaster comes upon them, it is not a defense on their part to say, well, gee, nobody told me. You're held responsible because you were supposed to have known. For example, you have the example of scriptures. But if you set a watchman up and he doesn't tell you then he goes, he goes with you, even though he himself did not sin, except in not warning you. Verse 7. He's talking hypothetically up here. So now he's turning and he's talking directly to Ezekiel. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. So what he's saying is, I am picking you up, Ezekiel, and I'm pinning the star on your chest, and you're now the sheriff in town, and you're the watchman. 
So you now fall into the category of the watchman I was talking about in the previous paragraph. So you son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn away from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. The base point here is, if the wicked do not turn from their ways, they will be punished. The only question in play here is whether the watchman is going to be punished also. And furthermore, there's always the potential that the watchman, having issued a warning, will in fact turn the wicked one away from his ways. That's obviously the purpose of the watchman. But the wicked one is responsible for his own behavior regardless of whether the watchman warns him. Verse 10, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So what's the rhetorical question? How can we live with our sins on it? In other words, we as Israelites have sinned. Nothing more we can do, so we might just as well enjoy the trip to hell. There isn't any point in me repenting or doing anything like that because I'm going to hell anyway, so make the most of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And what God says is say to them, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So what he's saying is that mindset is incorrect. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness, and the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right, he shall surely live. So you've got two men side by side. One of them has been habitually righteous, and the other one has been habitually wicked. So let's take the case of the wicked one first, because that's easier. It comports much better with Christian theology. If a man has been habitually wicked, and he comes to his senses, realizes his wickedness, repents, which is to say changes his direction, restores what he has stolen, in other words, makes restitution to the best of his ability for the things that he's done, and then walks off in the ways of righteousness, God will say, 
I will remember your sins no more. You are righteous. That absolutely squares with Christian theology. Nobody has any problem with that. Flip side of that now. Somebody who has been habitually righteous suddenly behaves in an unrighteous manner. What God says is, I won't remember his former righteousness. Now, the place people go with that, which is wrong, is you can walk all your days in righteousness and to make one little slip, you know, one little piece of bacon passes your lips and it's straight to hell. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is look at the list of sins that we're talking about. We're talking about robbery. We're talking about restoring the pledge. Remember in the Torah where it says that if you lend somebody money and he gives you his coat as a pledge, that you'll give him back his coat so he can sleep in it at night? So what we're talking about here is oppression of the poor. We're talking about robbery. And we're talking about violence. We are not talking about the inadvertent sins that all of us commit from time to time. This is not, if you make one tiny little mistake, without the Savior, you're doomed to hell. Sin is sin. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is if you turn from the righteous way that you have lived all your life and you start engaging in wickedness and impression, then your former righteousness will not save you. You've turned and changed your direction. Verse 17. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by them. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each according to his ways. 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. Remember that he was made mute except for prophecy. In a lot of his prophecies, remember, he had to act out. Okay, and so now his voice has been restored to him. 23. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many. The land is surely given us to possess. We talked about this before. They're standing on the promises of God inappropriately. Okay? Always want to be careful when you stand on the promises of God. Make sure you're standing on the promise that applies to your situation. Promises of God are absolutely trustworthy and absolutely sure when they apply to the situation that you're in. And so what these guys are saying is, wow, this all was given to Abraham and his descendants. We're descendants of Abraham, therefore it must all be ours. 25. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood, and lift up your eyes to your idols, and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? Eating flesh with the blood, we know that you've got to remove the blood from the flesh before you eat it. So these are all Torah commandments that they're not keeping. They're following idols, and 
shed innocent blood. I'm, I'm putting the innocent there in parentheses because that's what we're talking about. And he's saying, you do all these things that are contrary to my Torah, and then you expect me to give you the land? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations. And each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them. Thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. And whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. And I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and their proud shall come to an end. And the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of their abominations that they have committed. So what he's saying is, yes, I did make a promise to Abraham. And no, you don't meet the conditions to fulfill it. 30. As for you, son of man, your people who walk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. With lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. So what he's saying is, these people come to the prophet, and they ask for the word of God. The prophet gives them the word of God, and they don't do it. And in fact, their heart is set on their gain. And that's the key piece here. There are lots and lots of people who come to God for profit. Not profit as in foretelling the future, Profit as in monetary gain. The radio waves and the television waves are full of preachers who have a formula for hitting three cherries on the slot machine in heaven. And don't get me wrong, there's lots and lots and lots of wealth in heaven. That's not the problem. The problem is people come to God, they ask the word of God, and all they hear are the parts of the word of God that they think are going to pull the crank and line up the three cherries so that they get their blessing. They don't hear the rest of it. And that's what Ezekiel is saying here, is they come, they hear what you say, and they don't do it because they have their hearts set on gain. 32. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. You know, you have people that come because the choir is good, because the preacher is hopping up and dynamic, and they're there for the show, but they're not there to change who they are. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. When it comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. There's a time coming when they will realize that you are a prophet and the things that you have spoken are true and because they would not do them, they perish. Notice that the emphasis here is on what do you do? Not what do you think, not what do you believe, but what do you do? Do you behave righteously? Chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, 
who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek them out. This is not good. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they shall not be food for them. Okay. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. If you flip that around, what you see is a list of the things that a church is supposed to do. And I would commend that list to your reading. If you look there and you cross that, for example, with Paul, and his spiritual gifts, you'll find that there are spiritual gifts that deal with most of those situations. There are gifts for healing. There are gifts for administration and organization. There are all sorts of spiritual gifts that enable the church to do the things that this set of shepherds is not doing. And the other thing to understand is a well-run flock should be yielding wool and milk and so forth. If the flock is not yielding stuff, is not increasing, is not producing, then the shepherd is not doing his job. Notice who's going to rescue them when God finally gives up on the shepherds. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Thus says the Lord, behold I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And remember, what did Yeshua say? I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what he's saying is, you shepherds, you aren't doing your job, so I'm going to have to come down and do it for you. 13. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, 
and the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I will feed them in justice. This speaks of Messiah the shepherd. 17. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, and between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? So what again he is talking about are the powerful among Israel who have oppressed their brothers. Not only did they get fat themselves, but they screwed everything else up so nobody else could get fat with them. In other words, they took more than their share. 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder, and thrust at all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock." They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Again, what he says is not only is he judging the shepherds who are put in positions of authority over the flock, and have profited at the expense of the flock without caring for it. And again, understand that profiting from a flock is not bad. If the flock is healthy, it should produce wool and milk and all that good stuff. The shepherd should be able to use that. That's okay. But what the shepherds here have done is they have profited at the expense of the flock. The flock is not healthy. In other words, they have not maintained the health of the flock. They have diminished the flock. What would be said in business terms is they are living off of capital. Instead of having capital generate income and living off the income, they have gone into the capital and they're eating up the capital, which means that they've diminished the flock. But he says also, there are lots of you there that are not up to the status of shepherds. And what you've been doing is sheep to sheep, you've been messing with each other and you've been oppressing each other. So I will not only judge the shepherds, but I will judge between the sheep. Uh, Also, my servant David, this, as I read it, is David. This is not Messiah. Okay? And again, having a resurrected David ruling over Israel is certainly no stretch, at least in my imagination. 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. This feels to me like New Covenant stuff, and we know that the New Covenant is first stated in Deuteronomy. The thing that this is missing from the classical definition of New Covenant is the circumcision of the heart, but otherwise it feels very New Covenant. 28. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, 
nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. I am your God, declares the Lord God. As I say, that has a very new covenant feel to me. Uh, Israel's back in the land. God is in his throne and all is right with the nation. Very new covenant feel. 